We've been studying Experiencing God, right? We've been doing the Experiencing God series for several weeks now. And I really, really enjoy it. I think Henry Blackaby really lays out an accurate blueprint for us for what we need to do to experience God in our lives. Um, He describes several realities that uh, we encounter on our journey to experiencing God. And uh, this week we're going to discuss the seventh reality, obeying God, obedience. I didn't hear a whole lot of cheering and amen for obedience. What's up for obedience? Come on. Woo! Obedience. (laughs) Come on, you guys. You can muster it up. Obeying God and experiencing God accomplishes work through us. It all happens through obedience. You know, when I realized that uh, we were celebrating communion during the service, I thought to myself, man, celebrating communion, you know, and thinking about what it represents, it just ties in perfectly with obedience. Uh, even the scripture that I that I read to you in Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus humbled himself, being made in the likeness of man. He, he became obedient to the point of death. So here's the ultimate uh, example of obedience for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus gives us the perfect example of what it means to be obedient. The Son came to accomplish the will of the Father. That's why he came. He was accomplishing the will of the Father. And there was no greater expression of that obedience uh, than that of him suffering and dying on the cross for us. That took obedience. And there can be no greater work accomplished uh, than that when God the Father accomplished redeeming all of mankind through what Jesus did, through Jesus' obedience. There's our example right there of obedience. This week's memory verse comes from a portion of the Gospel of John. And in this portion of the Gospel of John, John is recording a discussion uh, that took place between Jesus and his disciples following the Last Supper. Also fitting. Holy Spirit, love how you coordinate things. So this verse, this verse comes from this discussion that that happens right after the Last Supper. Um, Jesus knew that these events were about to begin unfolding pretty rapidly. And so he's really just trying to prepare his followers for what's to come. Because we know after the Last Supper that things just start really happening, right? You know, Jesus gets arrested. He gets interrogated. He gets tried, brought before Pilate. And, you know, all these things just start happening. And really up until this point, there had been some, you know, some turbulent times in Jesus' ministry, but nothing compared to what was about to take place. And so during the Last Supper, he tells them his body will be broken and that a new covenant with God will be sealed in his blood. Then he tells them he's about to leave them. And whoa. You know, everybody, all the disciples, you can kind of just sense from reading this portion of scripture that they're all really taken aback by this. Like, 
What do you mean you're going to leave us? Where are you, you know, where are you going? What are you going to do? And, and even Peter, you know, Peter starts with the first question. You see, um, the disciples just start firing off these questions at Jesus. What's going to happen? What are you going to do? And, and Peter says, you know, he asks him, where are you going, Jesus? And, uh, Jesus answers by telling Peter, you know, where I'm going, you cannot follow me. But then Jesus tries to reassure him and he says, he says that where I'm going right now, you cannot follow me, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then you see Thomas. Thomas chimes in. He says, you know, and I'm just paraphrasing. Um, if you don't tell us where you're going, how exactly are we supposed to get there? And this is where Jesus says in John 14:6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so you can kind of sense um, what's going on here, and the confusion is caused because Jesus is talking about going to the Father, and, and he's going, um, and the way he is going, they cannot follow. They cannot follow him to that place. And they're bewildered because Jesus is using this language because um, he has to. But he's really not talking about a physical place, right? And he's not really talking about a way that you can follow on directions. You can't just plug the way that Jesus is going into the GPS and follow him. Especially our GPS. You never know where you're going to go with that thing. So even after this, the disciples continued to question Jesus And they were obviously, it was apparent that they were confused and upset. Where was Jesus going? And how were they supposed to get there? You see, they had spent three years basically following Jesus around. And it wasn't just that they came on Sunday mornings and they met him on Wednesday nights. No, disciples followed that person around, their rabbi, their teacher, all the time, just basically every day, soaking up everything that they could. And this is where we come to the memory verse for today. If you could put that slide up of the memory verse. John 14, 23, Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. And so right here, after all of this discussion, Jesus is reassuring the disciples that Basically, what they have to do is continue to obey what he had taught them, continue to obey what he had commanded them, and that they would continue to experience his presence and his work in their lives. And so right here in this uh, particular passage, this particular verse of Scripture, obedience, when he says obey, he's not talking about just a one-time thing, obey. Like in this moment, you have to obey or um, you have to obey this rule. But what he's talking about is an ongoing and continuous obedience. It's a lifestyle of obedience. And so he wants them to continue an ongoing, continuous obedience uh, of the things that he commanded him, the ways that he taught them to live. And so when we take a look at this scripture and we kind of uh, dissect it a little bit, we can see some conditions that Jesus is laying out here. 
And if we take the first half when he, when he says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. Right there he's saying, if anyone loves him, then they will obey his teaching. And see, obedience, obedience is the result of a loving relationship. It springs out of love. It's not the other way around. We don't love Jesus by, by obeying him. He doesn't command us to love him and we say, oh, I will follow that. I will love you. That doesn't work, does it? Somebody tells you that you're going to love them. Not very compelling, right? I, lucky I didn't have to do that with my wife. She loved me anyways. But obedience springs out of love, out of a loving relationship. And see, obedience here, coincidentally and lucky for us, is not a condition for God loving us. But it springs out of our realization of God's love for us and our responding in love in kind. So our obedience, God's not saying, if you don't love me, then I'm not going to work in your life or my presence is not going to be in your life. But what he is saying is, if you truly love me because I first loved you, you're going to obey. You're going to obey what I command you. And so then the second part we have here, we have if anybody loves Jesus, they will obey his teaching and then the father will love them and they will come to them, speaking of the father and the son, and make their home with them. You see, obedience doesn't spring out of a command and God doesn't condition his love based on our obedience, but obedience does open up the door for God to come in and uh, have a relationship with us and work in our lives. Obedience is what opens the door. Obedience is what allows God to do what he wants to do to accomplish his will in us. So basically he's saying, you know what? If you love me, you'll obey. And when you obey, that opens the door for me to come in and do what I want in your life. And you're going to experience me. You're going to experience my presence. You're going to experience my work. But it all has to come through obedience. You see, there's a cooperation that has to go on here because God has his will, right? God has his plan. And he wants to enact it in our lives. And guess what? We're not going to convince him to change that plan. He's not, he doesn't have a suggestion box for us to put suggestions in for that plan. God has a plan, and guess what? It's perfect already. And all we have to do is cooperate through obeying. And then we will experience God in our lives. Seems pretty simple, doesn't it? Through obedience, God does two kinds of work. The first kind of work is God works in us, right? God works in us through obedience, Obedience for us is the outward expression of our love for God. When we love God, we will express that by obedience. Obedience is motivated by our love for God. We love him, therefore we want to obey. We basically want to please him. We want to make him happy. We, we want to do what he wants uh, because we love him. John 14, uh, later in, well, actually in verses 15 and 24 says, If you love me, you will obey what I command. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. So the opposite is also true. 
if you don't really love God, you're not going to obey. There's a story in Matthew 12 that tells about a time when Jesus was speaking to the crowds, you know, as he as he always did. You know, we have all these accounts of Jesus speaking to the crowds. And this particular time, Jesus was speaking to the crowds. And, and while he was speaking, somebody came up to him. And they told him that his mother and his brothers were waiting to talk to him. And you get the impression that they were just kind of off to the side and they kind of whispered to somebody, hey, go tell Jesus when he gets a chance that his mother and his brothers are over here and we just really want to talk to him. And Jesus, he responds by asking a question. It's, it's kind of an odd question, but he's really trying to provoke some thought. And, and the question he, he posed to them is, is um, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Luckily for us, he answers his own question. Because if I were the disciples, I'd be kind of afraid to give an answer there. But Jesus answers his own question. He says, for whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. And so the point that Jesus was trying to make there is that anyone who obeys God's will can expect to have that same type of intimate relationship with Jesus, with God, then we often experience with our close family, with our mothers, with our brothers, with our sisters. We're going to have that kind of relationship with God, but it only comes through obedience. And so I would, I would say the opposite is also true in this case, that if you don't sense that you have that type of relationship with God, then maybe some examining has to go on there, some self-examination. Because you see, we know that sin separates us from God, right? Sin separates us from God. Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthians, at one point he asks a series of questions. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? And what he was just saying there is, you know, these two things do not go together. Sin and holiness are like oil and water. They don't mix. So what fellowship do these things have? So if, and what he's saying is, is if you have sin in your life and if you involve sin in your life, it doesn't mix with God. Jesus also makes the statement in Matthew 6, uh, verse 24, no one can have two masters. In other words, you can't serve two things. You can't serve God and, and man or, uh, mammon or money or even sin in general. You're going to end up only having one master in the end. You're going to end up hating the one or leaving the other. You just can't do it. And see, what happens in the lives of those people who um, continue to have that sin in their lives and are not obeying is they end up separating themselves from God. Oftentimes, I've seen that people who struggle with sin even separate themselves from their loved ones, from their church family. 
You see them just kind of drop off the face of the earth and maybe you run across them in Walmart someday and say, oh, hey, I missed you. I haven't seen you in a couple months. At least that's my experience as a pastor. You could always see that somebody was struggling and, you know, they just didn't want to face it. They didn't want to deal with it. They didn't want to come and and talk about it. They just wanted to shy away. So they separate themselves. They separate themselves from the church, from their church family, and they separate themselves from God. They stop praying. They stop coming to church. They even start to become angry or hostile towards God. And I think John 3.20 says it best. He says, um, For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. That's what separates us from God. We sin and then we pull away from God because we know that if we come to the light, that light's going to shine on our sin and we're going to have to deal with it. And so you see people pull away from God, pull away from church, and then there's this separation. But servants of God, do uh, they do what he commands. We do what God commands. And it's tough because, uh, as we just spoke about before, we're in a culture that's self-centered. Everything revolves around self. Everything is personalized, stylized. Everything is about me, me, me. And that is the world that we live in, and that's... That's the overarching message that we're pound, that's pounded into us day by day by the media and by everybody around us. And so sometimes unwittingly we find ourselves wanting to do our own thing as well and not obeying God. But let me tell you this. Ultimately, you're not going to experience God through good intentions. Matthew chapter 21, um, verses 28 through 31, Jesus tells another story. He says, a man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? You see, because there's a lot of people these days filling church pews that say, I will, sir, in public. But then in private, when nobody's looking, they do not go. That sin separates us from God. Many of us dream about God calling us to do something really important. At least I I hope and I pray that you have those types of dreams that that God will do something awesome through you or or use you for something incredible to further the work of his kingdom. I really hope that you have those dreams. I really hope that you have those aspirations because we all should. God can use any one of us to do something awesome, to do something incredible. But the problem is when he looks at our lives, we haven't even obeyed the commandments he's already given us. 
Why would he give us a new one when we haven't even obeyed the ones that he's already given us? You see, God has given us the Ten Commandments. He's taught us how to be holy through them. Jesus has given us the Sermon on the Mount. And he's taught us how to have a right heart with him. God has given us the Great Commission. And he has sent us to make more disciples in some way or another. He's given us all these things. He's challenged us, challenged us in all these areas. But if we're not even following those basic ones, how is he going to use us for bigger and greater things? I often use the illustration of when, when people pray God, uh, for God to bless them, uh, financially. And I've run into a lot of situations where people are like, I'm praying and I'm praying and I'm having faith, but God's not answering. And I'm, I tell them or I ask them, well, what have you done with the money that God's already given you? Because God's no dummy. If you go and squander the money that he gives you, he's not going to give you more money. It's the same principle. If God has given us these commandments and we're saying, God, do something awesome in our lives, but we won't obey the basic ones, he's not going to give us a new one. You know, when I was a a young man, younger man, okay, I know uh, perspective-wise I may not uh, be that old to most people, but um, when I was younger, I I prayed all the time for a wife. And um, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I just said, God, just give me a wife. Make me a husband. God, give me a wife. And, And God didn't answer for many years. And so I went through some, you know, some dating experiences that didn't really turn out very well. And, you know, I kept wondering, why? Why, God? Why? I I don't get it. And then one day I felt the Spirit speak to me and say, don't ask me for a new, uh, ask me to give you a wife. Ask me to make you a good husband. And so from that day forward, I started praying, God, make me the kind of man that will be a good husband. And you know what? I didn't know it, but God had to change some things in me. And God had to improve some things in me. God had some work to do. And God wasn't going to call me to be a husband if I couldn't get the most basic things right first. And so it wasn't very long after that, after God dealt with me on a certain things, that God brought me an awesome wife. And I'm so glad that somehow or another she lasted that long and somebody else didn't scoop her up. You know, because God is patient and and he's interested in developing our character, he's going to allow us to go down those paths for a while. He's going to allow us to go down those paths for a little while, but then he's going to discipline us and hopefully bring us back. Some of the greatest people... In the Bible, some of the greatest men and women of God were broken by sin and disobedience, but God didn't give up on them. Remember Moses murdered the Egyptian. God didn't give up on him. Abraham lied about his wife twice, two different times. Caused a lot of problems. David committed adultery. Peter denied Christ. Paul persecuted the church. God had to wait on those guys to get it right and to get the basics down. And then he used them for really awesome things. 
Let me tell you this, though. If you know God loves you, don't question his commands. God's commands are always right and always best. So many times we debate them because our heart wants us to go one way and God's word tells us to go another way. But the Bible even says it, that our heart is deceptive and it can't be trusted, right? And I think that probably a lot of us have learned that by experience. So don't question God's commands. Try and obey them. And if you need help, pray. He's going to help you. Because God's instructions, they're, they're not there to limit us. A lot of th- people think that God's, or feel like God's instructions, his commands are there to limit us, to, to confine us. They, they make our lives void of any fun or enjoyment that we could possibly have. And they view it as entering into servitude. But what I found is that God's commands are liberating. They're liberating. They're designed and and their, their purpose is to help us to have a good and prosperous and fruitful life. And as we obey them, that's going to be our experience. You know, I've never had, I've never had lying turn out to be a good thing. I've never seen a thief, uh, prosper in his life. Because of his thievery. I've never seen adultery turn out to be a good thing. I've never seen murder turn out to be a good thing. All these things that God has commanded us are to avoid the hurt and the heartache that comes from them. And so sometimes our heart wants us to go one way and the Bible tells us to go the other way. Go the Bible way. So obedience, obedience is critical to living a fruitful spiritual life. First of all, it's going to reveal what you believe about God. Because if you love him and you believe in him and you believe that Jesus gave his life for him and that God loves us and God redeemed us and set us free from that sin and he wants us to be with him in heaven, if we believe those things, we're going to love him and we're going to obey him. So your obedience is going to reveal what you truly believe about God, whether God is who he says he is and what and whether his word is true or not. Whether you believe that or not is going to be revealed by whether you obey or not. Obedience is also going to decide whether you're you're going to come to know him more intimately. And it's also going to determine whether you experience him working through you. So the second type of work that God can do through obedience is he works through us, right? He works in us and then he works through us. When we obey God, he's going to accomplish through us what he has purpose to do. You see, God, uh, one of the biggest underlying premises of this study is that God is at work all around us, right? He's always at work. He's always up to something. God didn't spend eternity sitting there waiting. Oh, Chris is born now. Now I can get to work. Okay. All right, now that I got you on board, let's do this. No, God's already doing stuff. He's already got a plan. He's already working in people's lives. He's working all around us. He's working right now. He's working here. He's working everywhere else in the world. God is at work right now all over the place. The work that God wants to accomplish through us 
is God-sized work too. You know, I talk about dreaming about God doing something awesome through us. God does want to do awesome things. He wants to do awesome God-sized things. Meaning that the size and the scope of the work is going is to correspond to his ability, his wisdom, his power, not ours. Because we tend to limit the work of God by what we can do and what we understand and what we can figure out. God's not limited by that. God is doing incredible, awesome things all over the place. Isaiah 55, 9, a section of scripture we're very familiar with. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God does things that are way more incredible than we can even imagine. God's thoughts are so complex, our puny little human minds could never figure them out. And God can call us to, do, to be involved in those things. God wants to work through us. I don't know why, but God wants to work through us. It seems to me that sometimes it would be a lot easier if God would bypass me altogether and just do what he needs to do. Because most of the time I seem to be a roadblock or a hindrance. But God wants to use us to do God-sized things so we can get on board with that. We can be involved in God-sized things. Look at Moses, for example. God comes to Moses. Moses can't speak very well. He's a murderer. He's on the lamb. You know, hiding out. He doesn't want to go back to Egypt. God says, guess what? I'm sending you back to Egypt, and you're going to get all my people, and you're going to set them free from slavery. I'm going to use you to do that. Moses is like, whoa. I can't even speak. I stutter. I I can't do that. But eventually Moses obeyed, and look what God did. Look at all the plagues that that God brought upon uh, Egypt. Moses played a part in that. Look at, he he parted the Red Sea, for crying out loud. If Moses hadn't obeyed, God would have never used him to do any of those things. But Moses, at the end of his life, could look back and say, look at all the things God accomplished because I obeyed. Because I obeyed and got on board, he could use me with what he was doing. You see, if Moses, if God would have said, Moses, I'm going to use you to set my people free, and Moses sat down and said, okay, now what can I do with this? You know, maybe I can infiltrate Egypt and raise an army, and maybe we can fight against Pharaoh, and, and somehow we can all escape out the back door. You see, that's what we do in our human minds. God had a, who could have saw that coming? Who could have saw the plagues coming? I don't think Moses said, well, yeah, of course, God's going to send plagues, and then we're going to leave, and then I'm going to part the Red Sea. Yeah. But if he didn't obey, God would have never done any of those things. In Luke 10, Jesus sends out the 70 disciples, right? He tells them to go out and proclaim the kingdom of God, go into all the towns. He says, don't even take anything. Just take take your cloak, take the shirt on your back. Don't take a bag. Don't pay, take a staff. Don't take money. Don't take your sandals. Just go. And proclaim the kingdom of God. And so they go. And people took care of them. And towns took them in. And and they come back to Jesus and they're saying, Jesus, you'll never believe it, but the sick were healed. And we were casting out demons and they were obeying us in your name. And it was incredible. 
And you get the sense that it was just like that. They come back and they're just like, you know, Jesus, we cast out demons. You wouldn't believe it. He's like, yeah, I know. But you see, if they wouldn't have obeyed and if they wouldn't have stepped out, because Jesus says, go, leave, don't take, don't take sandals, don't take money, don't take anything. That doesn't seem logical. Well, I'm going on a trip. What am I going to pack? I'm going to pack money. I'm going to pack shoes. I'm going to pack, you know. They had never cast out demons before. But if they hadn't obeyed, they, that, they would have never been a part of that incredible experience. You see, oftentimes God-sized work causes a crisis of belief, and that's what Henry Blackaby touches on. Causes a crisis of belief. Why? Because sometimes we forget whose work it actually is. And when God calls us to something, we feel a little overwhelmed thinking, how am I going to accomplish this? And sometimes we can't figure it out. We want to figure it all out. How does this all fit? Where is it going? What's the end result? How is this all going to work out in the end? And we can't figure it out. It makes us nervous and it makes us scared. But we've got to believe that God is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he's going to do. Zechariah 4, 6, another uh, really familiar portion of Scripture. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Not by your might, not by your power, not by your plans, not by your wisdom, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And when God does something through you in your life that only he can do, you're going to come to know him more intimately. I promise you that you're going to love him more. When God does something awesome and he uses you for something awesome and you're a part of that experience, that parting the Red Sea experience, that casting out demons experience, you're going to be like, oh, God, I love you. That was so awesome. You're going to trust him more, right? You're going to remember, God did that before. He's calling me to something else now. I can, I trust him that he's going to do it. You're going to learn to depend on his power and his ability and not your own. And you're going to be blessed. Plain and simple, you're going to be blessed. And then not only are we going to grow closer to him, but we, we learn a little bit about, more about God by what he does. When God works through us, accomplishes purposes, you, you know him, but you, you come to know him by experience. You know, you can meet somebody in a, well, I guess this is dating myself, but a chat room or nowadays eHarmony or one of those other sites, but you don't really know that person until you spend time with them, Right? You can know of somebody. You can know what they tell you about themselves. You can know the image that they project about themselves, but you never know that person until you spend time with them. It's experience that really reveals who a person is. And we get to know people through experience, shared experience together. Uh, Holly and I can look back on our marriage and our, our time together, and we have shared all sorts of experiences, up, you know, high experiences, low experiences, you name it. We've experienced it. But we've done it together, and I've learned a lot about her, and she's learned a lot about me. 
the good, the bad, and the ugly. But it was through the experience. So you come to know God through this experience. And you come to know him really when he meets a need in your life too, when he answers a prayer in your life too. You learn how powerful he really is, right? You learn how wise and intelligent he really is. Sometimes you learn that he has a sense of humor. You learn that he's loving, that he's faithful. You learn that God's in control. You learn that he's a provider. You learn all these things about God by experience. When, when I was pastoring a church in Sulphur, God, God spoke to Holly and I, and, and you know, he was really leading us to remodel this church. Uh, this church was built in the early 60s, and it hadn't been renovated in 40 years. But we were a congregation of about 50 people, give or take, and a good portion of them were retirees, and they were kind of on fixed incomes. And then we had a, a, another really large portion uh, of people who were younger, low-income families. So, you know, uh, it's not exaggerating to say that we barely had enough income to keep the doors open. But God wanted us to remodel this church, and so we obeyed. And we just started doing it. We just set out to do it, and we started just doing it. And we prayed for God to help us along the way. And let me tell you, I'm going to read a list to you of things that God did and gave us when we remodeled that church. He gave us a new metal roof installed by professional contractors, which if you know anything about roofing, that is very expensive. He gave us complete new carpet in the sanctuary in the foyer, a new sound system, a new computer and a wireless internet network. We replaced all the toilets and all the bathrooms because they had hard water and they were kind of nasty. A new dishwasher in the kitchen. We reupholstered all the pews, a new water heater in the parsonage. We remodeled a small uh, building into an apartment. We renovated a, another large meeting room in the church. We replaced all the light all of the lighting in the sanctuary, and we remodeled the nursery and the attached nursery bathroom. All that on a budget of just barely being able to keep the doors open. I don't even have an idea how much that all costed, but probably around $50,000 for all that stuff, I'm assuming. God does awesome God-sized things when we obey. Amen? And then we experience him. And see, through our obedience, not only did we, uh, not only did we have a functional place to worship, but we were also, uh, able to do other things. Um, through the little building that we remodel into an apartment, we were able to, to support at different times two separate young families that didn't have a place to stay. And during that time, we were able to disciple them. Pretty awesome setup, hey? They were stuck. They weren't going anywhere. They lived right next door. And also the, the big meeting room that, that we remodeled, we were able to provide a place for a congregation of deaf believers to meet. And it was a God set up because there, was, there just happened to be a deaf pastor in the area that was credentialed by the Assemblies of God. Talk about God having a plan. And that was whew, way over my head. 
But while they were there, their congregation grew because they had a place to meet. People were coming. And not only that, but their children who could hear didn't have to sit in the deaf service and, and read sign language. They came and were ministered by my wife in the children's service, in the children's ministry. God did all these things just by us obeying. And he continues to do things. So the moral of the story is when we are obedient, we will truly experience God. We experience God through an intimate relationship with him. We experience God when he accomplishes his work through us. As I wrap this up, I just want to share one more testimony, and this is by Henry Blackaby himself, and he wrote this um, in his book. Um, At the end of the chapter, or actually at the beginning of the chapter, so if you were reading, you would know this story. We were an extremely small church, he writes, and we were trying to staff and support three mission churches. So other, obviously they were planting other churches at the same time. We were asked to sponsor or plant another uh, church in, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which he says was 510 miles from their church. And he said someone would have to drive this, you know, around a thousand mile round trip in order to meet with the people in that place. And at first glance, he says, it sounded like an impossible task. But he says, you know, I shared with our congregation that a faithful group of people had been meeting for, you know, more than two years, and they wanted to start a church. And they had approached uh, their church to sponsor them. And so he says, our mission was to determine, sit down and determine whether this was God's work or whether he was, and whether he was revealing his work to us. Was this our invitation to join him in what he was doing? The church agreed that it was God's invitation and that they had to obey. So they agreed to sponsor this new mission, this new church plant. And then we asked God to show us how and give us the strength and resources to do it. He says, a number of times I drove to Winnipeg to preach and minister to the people. Sooner than, uh, sooner than for any other of our church plants or our mission churches, God provided a pastor and a salary. However, the story of our obedience did not end there. The original church became the mother church to many other mission churches and started an entire association of churches. All from obedience. God wants to do a God-sized work in our lives. God is already doing God-sized works. and He just wants to pull us in, make us a part of that. And so we have the opportunity to do that. And like I said before, I hope that that's your dream. I hope that that's your aspiration, to be a part of a God-sized work. So in closing, let me ask you a question. What level of obedience is God calling you to today? What level of obedience is God calling you to today? Maybe God wants to work in you. Maybe he's still doing a work in you. And he's calling you to obey his commands. And his Holy Spirit is prompting you, saying, this is the area that I want to work on. Maybe he wants to work through you. And that would be so awesome. 
He wants to work through you. He wants to pull you into his God-sized work and make you a part of it. And he's calling you to participate. Maybe you have never truly experienced God in your life. Maybe you're missing that God experience. Maybe, maybe you've been searching. Maybe you've been attending church. But maybe you've never truly experienced God in your life. And he's calling you to obey for the first time. Maybe that's you. So I want to take a couple moments and I want to have a moment of prayer. And I would like it if people would stay in their seats or come up to the altar, whichever one you want to do. This is about obeying. This is a gut check here. Do I love God? And if I love God, am I willing to obey? And allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you and let you know if there's some level of obedience that he's calling you to, that you need to respond to. And then respond. Respond in your heart. That's the first step, responding in our hearts. So for the next few minutes, I, I would, I'm inviting everybody to either stay in your seats, come up to the altar, but let's open ourselves up to the work of the Holy Spirit.